After two years of a fully online event, we're excited to be back in Liverpool with a refreshed Congress. As always, the event will offer three days of education in CPD with a programme that showcases the most cutting-edge content for a multidisciplinary audience that addresses the medical, scientific, educational and management issues in the diverse fields of diagnostic imaging, oncology and radiological sciences. Alongside this is a large professional exhibition of the latest state-of-the-art equipment, services and technology available in the industry. With the return of in-person Congress comes an opportunity to refresh and rebuild the event. With an emphasis on networking, practical and hands-on sessions, case study and discussion-led content, content for trainees, generalists and skills mix sessions and an interactive exhibition. So join us, RadChat, at UKIO Congress in Liverpool, 4th and 6th of July. Registrations now open. Hello everyone and welcome to RadChat, the first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 40. My name is Naaman Jock Anderson and I am joined by my fellow host Joe McNamara. Evening everyone. Can you believe it's 40 Naaman? 40! That's it. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, no, 40 is quite a lot. <laughs> a big thank you to our last guest, uh, Toru Shah, uh, who talks about her experiences of breast cancer and nutrition during cancer treatment. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So, we're very pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, Dr. Geeta Ramtari, who will be discussing her consultant, allied health professional practice, being a clinical academic and equality, diversity and inclusion. Hi, Geeta. Hello. So, Geeta, please could you tell us a bit about yourself, your current role and how you got there? Sure, yeah. I'm, I'm a, a physiotherapist uh, by training, so, um, and I qualified, oh, I'm old, so I qualified back in 1995. Um, and I've mainly worked in and around um, London. So um, I specialise in neurology and um, I went to um, uh, Queen Square, which is where I work now, which is the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery. I've bounced to and from that place and I'm now there as a consultant allied health professional, um, which is a bit of an interesting role. I was the first person at Queen Square to, to have a role like that. So nobody quite knows what to do with it, including myself. So what does sort of a normal day look like for you, especially being the first person to do it? So, yeah, that, that's an interesting question. <laughs> so um, so I, I work in um, a specialist service. So it's the Centre for Neuromuscular Diseases. And um, I've had links with that service for some time. I did my, some research there through a fellowship. Um, and um, my PhD was with one of the professors who was part of that um, service as well. And so what during the fellowship, I started to build up some um, a, a clinical role there as well um, and some particular specialist clinics. So um, a business case was written for a, a, you know, a, a senior therapist to take on a more permanent position there because at the time I was w- working as a, um, I was a senior lecturer and then associate professor at St George's University of London um, at teaching um um, it, mainly uh, AHPs and um, and so th- that gave me the opportunity to then come back into the NHS after having been out for 11 years. So the, a normal role for me includes some of that clinical work that we set up with some of these, cl- these specialist clinics um, but also because of my um, PhD in research background there's also quite a big research element and so I am also an honorary associate professor at the UCL Institute of Neurology and I'm a principal investigator in the Department of Neuromuscular Diseases so I supervise 
seven PhD students at the moment, um, although I've got a few completing this year, um, and um, and also um, you know, I'm PI for, for various other um, projects. So it's uh, it's a bit of a mixture, and I also teach on um, one of the master's programmes there in neuromuscular diseases and co-lead a module on peripheral nerve diseases. Busy. I was going to say, you're not doing that much then. Gita, you're so busy. <laughs> Uh, it's ridiculous uh, and, and I think that is probably one of the challenges of, of a role that's new and somebody like me who I'm only worse anymore I can never say no because um, I get very excited about things I think oh that's great that's really interesting what a great opportunity yeah yeah I'll be involved and then I realise that I'm just drowning and um, hopefully not letting people down too badly but um, but yes it, it's um, I, I think also when you're in a role like mine and you're a bit of a first in, a, in an institution or a hospital people hear about you and then everybody comes to you um oh yes oh yeah we need an AHP involved with this who's got some research right let's ask Gita you know so it 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 is also um there isn't critical mass yet to spread the work out I think um and hopefully we'll we'll be gradually changing that as we bring other um AHPs through um through into clinical academic roles which NIHR streams are helping with um and I'm involved with that as well. So Gita have you had to obviously learn lots about all of the allied health professions you know that element of your role you know have you had to independently kind of go away and make sure you have a true appreciation for what some of the services are what the healthcare professionals are doing within their own remit and scope of practice it's it's been a bit it's a, it's a bit of a funny one the, the reason that the title is consultant allied health professional is because they wanted somebody of a certain level equivalent to a consultant nurse um, and the, the banding associated with that. And interestingly, because nursing is a much bigger profession, that was coming out as, as a more senior role than a consultant physiotherapist. So it was when it went for job planning that, that they wanted it to be a, a level pegging, so it had to have the AHP title. I think that's now changed, because I know that there are consultant physios at our trust who um, at UCLH who, who um, have managed to work around that. So I think it may well have been um, of the time. Um, um, I think we've just got a bit smarter at how we negotiate the, the banding and the job planning for things now. So it wasn't necessarily the, the remit that I would be um, you know um, d- doing a, a lot of roles that would be other professions as it were um, it, I mean one of the things that I do in my clinic is that I follow people up um, for physical management instead of the neurologists so um, I, I do have a, a sort of a small caseload of people the neurologists are seen they don't they're, they're medically stable they don't really need follow up or they're being followed up by a, a local service but I catch up with them for the specialist physical management yearly for example so that's one of my roles and so having worked very closely in the past with particularly occupational therapy speech and language therapy orthotics um, and dietetics etc it, it's a case that is recognized knowing when to recognize referral on is required so I'm, I'm always referring on to you know, my psychology colleagues or my orthotics colleagues OT etc so it's more sort of being the the um, AHP filter um, I would say um, in that role um, but one thing I am very interested in I'm trying to do um, trying to sort of find ways of of getting some funding to be able to actually be um a more of an ahp lead in the trust for um for supporting hps with research which actually would be a, a wider remit so um you know reaching out to 
to podiatry colleagues, radiography colleagues, um, etc. So I have I have talked to some of the um, diagnostic radiographers in in our, our hospital, um, but it's I think COVID has then it, it sort of stalled a lots of of conversations that were happening. So um, I think there's there's lots of opportunities there, um, but the but the. I think the, the tricky thing is it's not an established role at the moment. Um, there's a director of of, uh, of our Centre for Nursing Midwifery and Allied Health Research who's a nurse. Um, and we, we've talked and we think it would be very helpful to have an AHP person helping to support people who's reasonably senior as well because we want to be bringing lots of AHPs through um, through uh, research, through PhD programmes, through NIHR fellowships, etc. It's, it's great for our services, it's great for the trust, it's great for our patients to be having you know bright, innovative, creative people. It's great that you've touched on that. As a patient, so for any patients listening, what do you think they are going to see as the benefits of having a clinical academic within maybe their service or, or the trust that's supporting people that are caring for them? when the sort of research that that we're very much about i think as ahps um and it is about um a lot of what we do is about the patient's experience the patient's journey what interventions are most effective what um uh, assessments or diagnostics are most effective um and being able to have the research knowledge methods knowledge to be able to go out and test that or find out what people people's priorities are um, consulting with with our patients about what um, guiding us and what they feel is important so so that we're not just delivering the same old stuff and not developing with the times and developing with the science it's very hard for clinical AHPs who are at the coalface all the time you know we know that our waiting lists are relentless we know that our jobs are very busy so actually as a clinical academic having time out to then be able to go and interrogate the the, the literature put that into a bid or or start to look at the data on something means that we can move services on and make sure that they're fulfilling the needs of the people that we're seeing um, there's, there's actually quite a lot of evidence out there now and there's been a few reports about how having clinical academic allied health professionals and nurses um, can really innovate services, bring quality, it raises quality, you know, um, quality improvement projects are a type of research um, and the more skilled we are at, at, at doing them, the better for the people using our services. So, um, and, and it's the same for our medical colleagues as well, you know, there's, there's a reason why a lot of the research hospitals that there were, as it were, have, you know, have good reputations for excellent um, you know, groundbreaking care is because the people there um, creative people innovative people developing interventions services diagnostics you know whatever um, is relevant to each profession and specialty I think touching on the time I think it's a theme that comes up a lot lots of people want to get involved with research but as you said there is very limited time I think even with protected time even that becomes limited um, I suppose you know everyone's under pressure at the moment. I understand that, but we do have to keep moving forward, don't we? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think what I've always said to people is to do impactful research, it, you need time and money. Um, but then to write the bids for them, you need time. <laughs> so it, it it can be a bit of a catch twenty two. But I think we're in better shape now with internships and 
you know, BRC support and that sort of thing to to be able to be bidding for time. And I think as AHPs, we 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 haven't been so good at at bidding for the same things that our medical colleagues are bidding for. So I mentioned the BRC, which are these biomedical research centres that a lot of the big trusts have, often in partnership with the university. So we have one that's joint between UCLH and UCL. And um, I realised all my neurology colleagues, who I work very closely with, were all getting you know half a day, a day of funding to you know for, to support them. I was like, okay, right. So I'm coming to this new role. I don't actually have any d- devoted research. I'm going to put a bid in, and I did, and I got what the equivalent of two PAs in in medical contracts. So that's a day. Um, and so that allows me then to be able to write bids, which I've, I've been doing, and um, you know try and analyse data, supervise um, research staff, etc. And it's vital, you know, I would not be able to do what I'm doing. And I think I heard from one of our divisional managers, I was the first HP to do that at, at the National Hospital, Queen Square. So, and I'm now wanting to say, right, well, more of us need to be getting in on this. And actually the BRC have, they, they have, NHR gives rounds of money to the BRCs and it's, it's all being reviewed this year. So the next round, which I think is round four, starts in December. It's, and we don't know how much each BRC is going to get yet, but it's all a big announcement in May. But one of, one of my missions is to be going, right, those of you who are research active or who have some re- research track record and you're struggling with time, right, let's put some bids in so so that people can do that. But the NIHR internships, the NIHR um, PCAF fellowships um, are a really good way of um, buying out a bit of time to, to really think and work up a bid um, to then get research done. Um, and also research is not a lone pursuit you have to do its teams with supervisors and collaborators so it also allows that time for you to form those networks find those supervisors you know find the people who are going to mentor you um because it's 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 um it's not a it's not a straightforward thing you know how how do you navigate approvals r&d etc there's others there who've got experience of it um, and it, I think you'd send yourself stir crazy if you tried to do it all on your own. To be honest with you, because it's it's, it's quite, it can be quite complex and challenging. I think sometimes Gita, it's just even the terminologies. So the acronyms for everything that you've got to fill out when you're doing research proposals. Yeah. Having a mentor who can interpret those saves you hours and hours. <laughs> Absolutely, it really does. And then you know, I've been I've been doing research for some time, and um, and you know, I think I know the processes, and then it changes. So, you know, having guidance is really helpful. I suppose being a bit of a trailblazer, Gita, and being the first person to do it, what are some of the challenges you faced, and did you get some? Did you get enough support? I suppose from the clinicians around you as well. So I suppose I already knew a lot of the clinical teams um, because I had that foot in when I, I had an NIHR postdoc fellowship, for, which I did part time for five years from St George's, and I um, so I already had those relationships, which was very helpful. So I wasn't sort of coming in brand new, and um, you know I'm very lucky that I have neurology leads who are who really push have pushed me forward have you know that they wanted this role um you know they were willing to to write it and put the bids in for the business case um and then also equally in a, a fantastic therapy services manager who's behind me every step of the way and 
you know, put, puts up with my nonsense, which is great, um, but also has a real interest in developing a research culture at, the, at, at our hospital as well. And, and, and as, even before I was in that role, had already um, worked with some of our charities to get internships for, for HPs. So um, so I think we've, we, the research culture there is quite strong. I think it always has been, even from when I first landed there in 2001 as a jobbing physio, um, I knew that there was a couple of physios around who were doing research then, you know, um, Professor Jenny Freeman, who's now in Plymouth, was one. Um, there were a couple of others. And, you know, the, the, so the trailblazers, the, I wasn't the trailblazer, they were. You know, I looked up to them. And But then I think then we didn't have NIHR, so when research happened, it was very much within the universities. Um, it, it, it is changing. There are not many of us who are senior in these roles um, and particularly the, who have hit the really senior level so I I know of one physiotherapist at Imperial um, Professor Caroline Alexander who is the first person I can think of in London who is NHS employed a clinical academic um, and has now just been made a professor honorary professor at Imperial so you know she for me she's the trailblazer so I I, I annoy her all the time and go Caroline how do we do this um, so it, it's it's we're both lucky we're in research research intensive institutions with good links to universities what i hear from others are the challenges is when you, the research culture isn't there you know you're having to convince people managers um what the benefits are that i was talking about earlier what are the benefits of having cl- clinical academics in your services um and certainly when i see people who have even within our service which has a good research culture but when people get internships or fellowships, then it is a management headache of how you backfill. And then because these are relatively new pathways, what happens to the person when they complete that fellowship or, or internship? Um, particularly with the fellowships that you're out for a longer period, you might be out for three years, five years. So what happens to your post? Do you fill it with somebody else? What happens to the person when they come back? So there's all these managerial issues, HR issues to, to, to think about. And I think they can sometimes put managers off because it feels quite complicated. I think NIHR is waking up to that now and they certainly have changed how the funding works for some of the fellowships in that they will pay for the clinical time allowed backfill, but there's still some hoops that have to be jumped through. But I, I think one of the, the big challenges in a big institution like UCLH and I'm, I'm sure some of the other teaching hospitals is that we are still very small professions <laughs> and even though we now are sort of collectively the third profession the professional group as it were you know with Suzanne Rastrick's work bringing us together which I think is phenomenally important it gives us more of a voice but a lot of 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 trusts the dominant profession doing research is, is medicine and surgery but you know our, our medical colleagues um so a lot of their internal fellowships, internal structures will be very much geared up for medicine and medical contracts, for example. Um, this is something I've raised in our trust. It's been raised in other trusts. I know Kings have been looking at it and others. Um, so it, it, it is it, it is an issue with terms of how people are supported, um, which is why having clinical academic leads in trusts and you know, parts of research centres is important so you've got people to try and speak up at meetings or get into the meetings and, and remind um, the, the the leadership that, that we are around, we're doing great work um, we need support because actually our work 
changes patient experience in the short term. We're not looking at membranes, we're not looking at protein signalers, we're looking at patients' experiences now. I think it's interesting looking at it kind of where medicine has always dominated and now I don't like the term but there isn't really another term apart from allied health professional but non-medic is a term that's used a lot for us isn't it that I know in your blog that you wrote um, on your website uh, is it hard to buy Um, very powerful just reading about this being a successful non-medic or you know trying to get away from the old cliches there is still a lot I think especially for us as radiographers we're not quite there yet Um, there are lots of consultant posts everywhere but there's still some of the old school mentality that well if you have a consultant radiographer does that mean that they want more money does that mean they want more responsibility in taking away from a consultant oncologist for example but those barriers I think yeah just what you wrote it really resonated with me it's something that I've seen in practice or I think other friends and colleagues have talked about that they want to be a clinical academic they love the clinical side they want to do two days a week clinics but it doesn't always work that way it depends on the support network around you yeah it, it really is at the moment we don't have the pathways there um but though there has been uh, the um that nhs england and he launched the ahp research strategy i think two three weeks ago there was a um a webinar suzanne drastrick um and others um beverly harden um they presented it um there's going to be some follow-up workshops which are you know i would anybody who's interested in research i would really recommend getting on because we're the, you know, we're the people at the coalface trying to navigate these things. I'm going to try and get on them if I can, if I'm not in clinic, and I'm going to try and encourage others to do the same because um, then we can help to shape it, knowing the challenges that we face every time we're, we're trying to get things off the ground. Um, it, it, it does At the moment, it does feel like we're battling, but I think it's, it's definitely improved. You know, since I started research, it was before NIHR was even in existence, when I first started my PhD, I started my PhD in 2004 and NHR started, I think, in 2006, I think, something like that. Um, so it was a bit of luck how I managed to get on this PhD and, uh, you know, and just being in the right place at the right time and going for the interview and, and not really knowing what I was doing. Um, but um, but uh, whereas I think now there are at least some good pipelines there um, that, that we can be getting into. And, and also we have dedicated funding streams as well. The ICA stream is, is for us nurses, midwives, healthcare scientists and, and social workers, which is brilliant. You know, at, at least then um, we will be interviewed by people who understand our professions and... Um, uh, and our work will be reviewed by people who understand our professions, which I think is very helpful. When it, it's it's a little bit like um, to, I mean, it crosses over with EDI slightly here. You know, think of us as a, as minority professions. You know, and so actually, people not perhaps people from larger professions, more represented professions with privilege, maybe might not appreciate actually how much harder. You know, um, a radiographer who's looking, who's trying to get a postdoc fellowship, um, or a podiatrist trying to get onto PhD program, that a hoop they have to jump through many, many more hoops, um, and get support in a way that our medical colleagues don't have to because they have more established um, uh, pathways, and um, and even for them it's hard. You know, I know I know some of my neurology colleagues have still have a tough time I don't know if they've got jobs at the end of things but there's a more of a critical mass of them than there are us um, I think so it, it's it's um so I think if you have a panel looking at assessing research uh, applications 
who who get that who, who say oh you know what from what I know this person's actually really done well here because it, it's shandy whereas if you put them up against um, a medic for example who maybe maybe is equivalent time qualified or whatever the, the profile might look different and they might have more publications or whatever but the person reviewing will know will be able to appreciate actually what that person's had to do and how clever and smart they are to have got to that point you know I sit on the the I'm on the chairs panel now actually for the NIHR clinical doctoral fellowships and I'm blown away by the quality of the applications every year I do it I mean phenomenal amount of thought and talent and intelligence and just grit goes into those um and you know I, if I had my way I could fund I'd fund all of them but we've only got a small you know a, a, not a small pot it's quite a big pot actually but it's a limited pot but you really are people who are going for those you know you you, you really do see see real talent in our professions I think that was a beautiful segue into equality diversity and inclusion there um why is is EDI important to you <laughs> so well, being from a minority background myself, being a woman um, and a small profession, I do. I, it's, it's interesting I say that uh, uh, with a slight pinch of salt, but, but it isn't actually when you are from a small profession, you, you do have to battle in the same way, I think, in, in, in some respects, um, where you have a dominant culture. And I think because our healthcare professions are are embedded in that biomedical quite paternalistic culture I think of medicine medicine is changing uh, I think it is changing it's not quite as as paternalistic as it used to be certainly from when I qualified in the 90s it's quite a different space now and uh, attitudes are very different and our, our colleagues are trained differently now as well in, in, in the medical degrees um, but um, but that very much the biomedical model is very dominant and and um, and, and uh, many of us may uh, may work in a slightly more biopsychosocial or um, a, a sort of a, a, a quite a slightly differently driven model of, of practice. So it's um, it, it, it means we don't always necessarily fit the, the majority culture, I think. Uh, and that's sort of not quite fitting is what I allude to in some of my blogs, actually. Um, and being a... You know, physio, and we're we're one, you know, we're probably one of the biggest um, of the HP professions, um, and, and we still have challenges. But but actually, qualifying in '95 um, as a, a, a female um, from a, a ethnic minority background with a foreign name um, uh, was was interesting in terms of of where you fit in. Um, and um, I, in a way, I, I stayed in London because I knew that that London. As, as a city is very diverse and I know colleagues in Birmingham say the same thing in Manchester and I think in the cities that's the case and we, we probably reflect the population a little bit more when you're from a, a, an ethnic minority background um, but our professions are still we're still very much in the minority in our professions and it was it was observations I made of care of patients assumptions made about people from different cultures and different ethnic backgrounds over my career um that started you know had irked me and seeing how certain colleagues have been treated as well you know we we, we have a real thing in physiotherapy um where that we've observed and we've discussed this in a part of the csp bame network um where we don't a lot of our colleagues particularly in the musculoskeletal profession who are from particularly black backgrounds we don't see those colleagues in the NHS 
they leave and go into private practice? What is it about the NHS that is an unwelcoming place? And also we're doing work at the moment um, looking at the consultant trajectory for physiotherapists from black and minority ethnic backgrounds. And the stories we're hearing from overseas colleagues, it's just, it's, it's shocking actually how people are treated. And when I joined the CSP BAME network probably about four or five years ago, um, and started to hear experiences. I reflected on my own experiences, but I have a certain degree of privilege. I was born in this country. I understand the culture in this country. I'm half white. My mum's Irish. Um, I have a British accent. I'm socialised in the UK. Um, so, and I'm light skinned. Um, and colourism is something that is very much there in some of our communities, um, across many communities. Um, and so it, it's it made me reflect that yes I'd experienced certain things but the experience of others was was more difficult um and it and then of course the murder of George Floyd which shocked us all so much and was particularly wounding and painful for our black colleagues um with the Black Lives Matter movement really surging forward made us reflect as a group and made our profession reflect made us reflect as institutions and I realized that part of my privilege as well now is that I'm in quite a senior position and so I'm my uh, my position is less to, less at risk if I speak out than maybe some of my more junior colleagues from different backgrounds um and you know I'm not frightened of speaking either as you may have noticed um but uh, so I, I felt that I had to start some of those conversations put my head above the parapet start bringing others on interestingly I've now pulled back a little bit because there's some fabulous physios coming through our profession through CSP BAME now who you know the CSP has just been transformative they now have got uh, this equality diversity and belonging um, um, council now or committee that is um, that our networks are now are, are recognized in the same way as the specialism networks it's just been phenomenal and there are some great people coming through now um, so, so I want them to have the voices now. They're now in those positions in the committees. They're now on our, our council, um, and, and so I, I can I can because people have heard my voice long enough now, and there's time for fresh voices. But it, it was because I, I we, our, our council was for the, the last um, election was all white, um, majority female, and. Um, yeah, it, I don't know what diversity was in uh, for other protected characteristics um, in terms of LGBTQI plus or disability, but visibly it was not a diverse council, and and I, I you know, stopped, commented on that quite publicly, and <laughs> and I probably irked a few people. But as I say, I'm senior enough to be able to do that without it coming back at me, um, or, or you know, with less risk to myself and my career because I'm, you know, I'm I'm reasonably old now, so I'm you know I'm not trying to start out like others uh so so that that was and you know I've always had this sense of um I'm a bit of been a sort of a bit of an activist a bit of a sense of injustice and um and so that will to try and make things better for the youngsters coming through is is I think what we're seeing now is what we're ha- what is happening now is really encouraging and and um, and I see that same fire in their belly as well as they're taking it forward and and they're the, I, I, yeah, I'm just really looking forward to seeing where it all goes. That, that's in physiotherapy, of course. Um, I, I think a harder nut to crack is actually within institutions. So I'm, I'm on the um, BAME committee in our hospital. I'm also 
chair of the EDI committee for our Department of Neuromuscular Diseases at UCL Institute of Neurology. And, and I think the power into play is much, much more complex in big institutions. Um, so I'm treading a bit more carefully there. <laughs> Um, and, and just sort of yeah taking baby steps with that I haven't quite felt where I am how much I can push with that yet there's some very interesting work that came out of Canada um, that showed that um, sometimes the experience of particularly ethnic minority women brought in to make change with EDI can fall very badly for them and they end up exiting the institution so it can be risky. So um, it's it's uh, important to tread carefully. Do you think that when it comes to EDI issues or moving forward, that sometimes it can be a bit of a knee-jerk response to get someone of colour or from a protective characteristic to come in and change oh, it? Yeah. it? Well, this this is what this, this um, research showed. I mean, what I could do is I can always send you this really interesting infographic that you could then have available to the listeners um, which shows this process. Somebody's brought in, tick, and then they're welcomed with open arms. And then the person points out what's going wrong. People start getting defensive. This person's a troublemaker. Let's see if we can get them out. And and I've I've had a slight brush with that, with something quite specific that's happened. I won't say where, but. Um, where I suddenly realised that I was becoming very unpopular within a particular meeting and was actually asked by somebody who I thought was independent of what was going on, wasn't I just being sensitive? Very inflammatory word, isn't it? Sensitive. Um, I think it's it's good to see that, you know, putting yourself above the parapet, recognising it is difficult. Someone has to do it. That's something I've always heard. It doesn't have to be you. That's something else I've heard. You're being sensitive. But I think until people start shouting about it, someone is always going to take flack for it. And whatever protector characteristic it is, I think at every level, I know you said you feel braver because you're higher up, but I feel it really shouldn't be that way. I think students that I've come across who say, well, actually, this isn't right. We shouldn't be doing this for a patient. They get berated and say, oh, you're not doing well. You're speaking out. But actually, if it's going to affect patients, same as it is with EDI, it's really important. I mean, how many times have we seen patients from ethnic minorities they might not want to speak up as much let's say their first language is in english but people don't want to get an interpreter to understand what their problem is why yeah <laughs> what if you miss something what's the the benefit of hearing that patient out fully first time to then in two weeks time they come into a and e and that's another sim- um, you know another symptom to add more resources that are taken up when you could have just spent five minutes with them to understand at the beginning but it's really interesting i think patient care that's where edi whether it's you know you see it with your colleagues it, it goes into patients because there's oh. a whole cohort of patients who just get missed absolutely and uh, and it, it all feeds into the same thing because i think until we have representation in our professions that that matches the populations we're serving then i, I, I think the quality of what we are offering our, our patients from particular backgrounds will always suffer we, we, we're seeing these reports, uh, you know, over and over, particularly the last few weeks, we've been, you know, from the, um, the, the race observatory, there's been, there was a, the article in the Guardian um, about the health, about health inequalities, how we're letting down our, our people from, from particular minority groups. Um, and, and until we are more representative, because I think what I talk about in one of my blogs is that I, I reflect on a particular incident with, with, a, with a, a patient. And I realised that it was only my cultural 
literacy because of the background from that understood how inappropriate the situation was um, and, and others wouldn't and, and interesting I was looking back at some of the comments on Twitter when I, I as I pinned that that tweet where I, I linked to it and somebody said you know I think I think I've done that I think I've done what you've said I understand now I didn't have that cultural history and it, you know and I think well fantastic for you for having that discomfort to be able to acknowledge and go you know I didn't do that well but I'm going to do better because I can look back at times when I think I didn't do that well I need to do better it doesn't make me exempt from being insensitive to people who aren't from my background so but but it's a learning journey and I think being really honest with yourself which isn't comfortable it really isn't you think oh you know that but but the best thing you can do is to vow you're going to make make it different and you're going to open your mind and make it change but uh so i think that there is that and certainly you know in in your rehabilitation which is an area i'm very interested in you hear this terrible phrase rehab potential this person has no rehab potential or limited rehab potential and and often it is it is about people's educational level or that it, how easy it is for somebody to be able to interact with the dominant culture of that institution and that department and that service um, and it's it's a terrible term but there's something that we do here uh, and uh, you know like you say it's going to be more effortful if an interpreter is required so that person is already on the back foot because of um, because of the, the unwillingness to do that or, or that being seen as a barrier um, uh, which really troubles me. I think there's, um, and you've touched on the EDI stuff, there's some really interesting research coming through the King's Fund, um, brilliant literature, um, that especially around health inequalities and kind of racial justice, which I know you're something quite a bit of an advocate for as well. So Tracy Jolliffe wrote an article, um, I think you've linked it as well, but I'm just going to read out the quote because I think it's really important to hear, especially when you're talking about people at different levels and how they should be trying to stand up for people with, so she said, it's now time for leaders at every level to be brave enough to ask themselves whether their practices are making a difference to the lived experiences of those who claim that their work will benefit. I think it's such a powerful quote that I think people really need to hear because any little change that you make, I mean, this is some of the impact that Joe and I are getting through the podcast, is that one little, you know, one bit of advice you give that a patient's told you that has the impact to help hundreds, thousands more people. I think it's right from being a student or a assistant practitioner up to you know band nine ceo whatever i think we really need to start doing it it doesn't matter about your privilege as you said accountability mirror look at yourself you know your privileges i've got loads of privilege um you know i'm, I'm here doing a podcast <laughs> in the evening um got a roof over my head which is great but if i can't see all the things that i you know that my patients go through how am i going to benefit everyone yeah absolutely there's and I think we also have to um, there is part of me as well that's quite sensitive to how this comes across to um, other uh, British colleagues British white British colleagues white British patients and, and it is not about taking away from what is already there I mean it's not about wagging a finger and going you've got privilege you're a bad person or somebody who might have been brought up in poverty you know terrible poverty um but who is white, understanding actually privilege has different domains. Um, and there's, um, you may have heard of her, Professor Stephanie Nixon, who's um, a professor in Canada. She's a physiotherapist, but she wrote this excellent coin model um, paper. So it's understanding that on some of, so the coins are these different 
characteristics or domains. So for some people, it might have been that they were um, they were born into wealth, so they're privileged, or they're born into poverty, so they're oppressed. And it's just accident of birth. It doesn't make you a bad or a good person. You could be, a, but it's it's how you then leverage that to either bring other people on or to, you know, to to keep other people down. And so one of those coins might be sexual orientation if you're heterosexual or if you're on the LGBTQIA plus um, side of the coin or if you're cisgendered or transgendered if you're male or female if you're um, white or non-white if you're black and everybody else because we know that anti-black attitudes is a, a, a problem in some of our other ethnic minority communities so it's um it's, and it's, it is about sort of saying, right, well, so, and, you know, and I, I was looking, I was okay, so on this coin, I'm there, and another one, I'm under there, and another one, I'm on top. So, it, but, but I think when, when people are challenging back, you know, it's not my fault I was born into this, you know, it, it, no, it, no, brilliant. And, and it's not saying that you're a good person or a bad person. Um, and it's, it's people sort of understanding that if you were born into wealth or born into poverty, you, you know, the, you're oppressed you you that made life difficult for you but then you're visibly white so that would have given you some advantages as opposed to somebody who is black so it's it's um it's it's just i think it's a very useful uh model to be able to it's a tool i think to be able to explain that to, to people who are maybe struggling with this idea of 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 actually that they might be giving something away by bringing in equality and I think there are people who struggle with that idea they, think there's, they feel threatened by it um, I think some of the rhetoric that comes in that opposes the whole idea of EDI and you know you hear people talking about the evils of critical race theory and all of that sort of thing you know there's this quite right wing voice that ebbs away on social media um, and and I think it's we, we have to be sort of be open to the fact that some people who are not bad people or good people, but have heard this and feel threatened. So it's very useful. Um, Stephanie did um, a fantastic lecture, a founder's lecture for the Charter Society of Physiotherapy, um, where she presented the coin model. It's now on YouTube. So again, I can always send you the, the link if people want to listen about the coin model. And she brought in four of us who, um, to then we, we were talking about privilege as superpowers. So we all talked about our superpowers. You know, we were all from different backgrounds and different, different, um, protected characteristics and we had a different superpower but it was a way of 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 showing then well what we were committed to tra to changing you know how, how we could do this um so i again I'll, I'll i can always link that send you the link if you wanted if, and if any of your listeners were interested stephanie just just she just explains it so beautifully and it's a, just a very i find it a very helpful tool when i'm in, in talking to people and and, and engaging people in, in discussions about EDI and it's also being true to it yourself you know I look at my little research team now my, my PhD students and, and and who I'm supervising and I, I think they my little team looks different now um, is they're more diverse now um, than they were before um, is they're a bigger team now but they were little before but, but very very conscious about giving people opportunities but 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 still good people so so actually how do I we work out who has the talent and ability to to do their phd um but who might it might not be so apparent because of language um you know, english as a second language or um in in some cultures 
questioning your professor is, is a no-no so you know so how do you eke that out of people and, and you know I, I've got some very smart talented students from from other countries and who are who are doing really great work. I've definitely witnessed that Gita um, supporting students um, who maybe English isn't their first language and they're like oh Joe, I'm really sorry my academic writing isn't great and I just go you are amazing like you yeah. you speak lots of different languages and you can write in English and I understand it and you're reading all the literature and engaging in research and it's really sad that the automatic response is I'm just not good enough um, and yeah. when actually from my perspective I think anyone who speaks any other languages and can write in like even teaching my son all the different theirs I don't even understand it so it is it's honestly my hat goes off to anyone who can understand the English language because um it is it's ridiculous um but it is it's sad that just that that initial response isn't it that that initial kind of oh I'm really sorry I'm apologizing when I'm like no you are amazing as a human being you are amazing because you've got all of these skills this knowledge and so we definitely need to celebrate and embrace it so Gita I definitely think we could probably talk about that all night um Mm. but we need to move on and I'm keen to kind of get out of you around kind of the leadership and the elements around leadership Mm. because I definitely think um that there are aspiring leaders out there what advice would you give to someone who maybe has some um, kind of attributes and skills that they feel would make them a good leader? What do you think they could do to kind of improve their chances of maybe working at the level that you're working or aspiring to um, especially engage within the four pillars, but specifically around leadership? Yeah, I, I think one of the things that's been very helpful for me is, is mentorship, actually. Um, from other leaders and um, being able to sort of ch- check in, uh, I, I think it's probably just I I think I'm very bad at um, at perhaps you, you know self validating. I, I think some particularly early on, I'm probably better at it now. But but understanding if I'm doing something well or not. Gosh, I remember when I started my PhD, I was wrapped with this sort of oh my god, I don't know if I'm doing this well. Am I doing it not? I, you know, I couldn't self evaluate. So actually, having somebody to go, yeah, you you you're doing good. Or and also for people to then be able to guide you or, or coach you um, in, into thinking about what your personal development might be. Um, I I had I did do some leadership training um, as part of my fellowship, which is very helpful. And I think a lot of self reflection is really important and knowing. Um, what your learning style is, how you come across to other people is really key. Um, I realised that uh, through that process that um, I can be quite exhausting (laughs) to people around me. Um, uh, And so being very mindful of that, that my push, push, push energy, I I tend to push, push, push and then flop for a bit and then push, push, but that isn't how everybody works, you know, and also appreciating variability in learning styles and and um, personality types is really important because um, to have a whole team of me would just be a disaster for starters but actually bringing in um, a, a mixture of, of, of people people who are reflective people are details or I'm not details orientated I'm a, I'm a bigger picture um, look at the strategy intuitive maybe you know actually where can we 
twist and turn and take opportunities here but if you ask me to go through you know a, a, a document and find every single spelling error in there I'm just not I, I, I just don't have the, I don't have the attention span but but I'm not but I know other people who who absolutely relish that sort of work who are very comfortable and very good at that sort of work so I think it, that's where being mindful of who you are for the skill sets but also for the effects you have on people around you the other thing I think I've found helpful more recently and maybe again this is something when you've you're on a little bit it's been quite vulnerable actually and being open um and and not feeling like you have to be a bulletproof leader all the time and go you know what I'm struggling with that today yeah, yeah no I, I I get what you're saying and and not being and if you misstep not being frightened to say I'm really sorry I, I've I've totally missed that or I have misinterpreted that or I've made things difficult for you and I really apologize you know it, it's it, it's it, it's okay because I think if you show humility and your own sense of vulnerability to others that, that it becomes a more trusting team um, um, not so much that they just think you're rubbish it's not it's not about that it's, it is just about going okay we're all human um, because then if people really are struggling they will come to you you can come up with solutions um, together I would much much rather that than if, if you know where, where teams are very autocratic there's a real sort of a strong push from from one person and people have become a bit frightened of of of, of saying when they're having problems um and then people will either just crack or leave or you know it's 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 not good so yeah self-awareness awareness of people around you being open and vulnerable i think of of but then being able to and willing to put the emotional work in with somebody if they're struggling and and to be able to do that but also i think also the other thing that i do and i i've i'm i do try and do this and i've had some of my career successes with this is to when there's a problem to crack or or something to um to solve is doing it as a team so we knew for example we knew we, we wanted to put a, um, a research bid in for an exercise trial and we were not you know i wasn't having much luck so we got the team together right what what would be the perfect design come on team we've got we've got you know flip charts out and bits of sticky paper we took them all around our gym and we sort of bashed it all out we brought some papers in and critiqued them and right well what didn't work there what will work here and we've got it and we put that in and we got the grant that was that was my first grant as a pi so it, it you know that collective thinking and is is really and everybody then feels like they're on board with it they're contributing but well, i hope they did um and then it becomes a team success we're doing that more now with with our service users and our patients as well co-production of, of resources um patient public involvement with research as well you know i've just there's a paper that um i'm writing with a colleague and we've just contacted a, a patient who I thought would be very interested in this to actually come on and work with us and be a collaborator and a named author on it so you know we should be doing more of that. Geeta what you said about um, your behaviour really resonated with me because um, I've just started in a more leadership role and some of the initial meetings I've had um, have basically implied that maybe I need to consider that I am a very positive person 
and that maybe not everyone else is quite so positive and enthusiastic. Um, but it is, it's, it's having that time to reflect, isn't it, on those leadership skills. And I, I definitely think that if anyone is aspiring to kind of go down that leadership route, having the critical reflection of your of yourself you know doing a really good self-appraisal um i know for lots of undergraduate students that's kind of part and parcel but i don't i don't always think we do it enough when we are then qualified and in our various roles but having the opportunity to really sit back and reflect on who are you a person how are you learning you know what is maybe some of your subconscious bias that you need to maybe challenge um i think is really important i know um we often get asked um, when we talk about leadership about you know what what potentially could people do to improve their knowledge and skills in that area um, and I know I always recommend the NHS Leadership Academy um, they have lots of different programs and I know in relation Geeta, to some of the things that you were talking there is the stepping up program specifically for BAME colleagues so if they had aspirations to become mm-hmm. a leader that's maybe somewhere yeah. that they might want to consider looking um, there's also the Edward Jenner program that I know I recommend quite a lot to our students who are coming up to qualification um some amazing leadership opportunities available and we're really lucky i think now because leadership is embedded in a lot of curriculums for allied health professions nursing medicine but i also think that there are lots of extracurricular opportunities and i know for people that we've had on who are at your level Gita, inspiring future leaders they have had maybe a squiggly career path you've had those widening opportunities to really Mm -hmm. be able to experience outside of your professional um, boundaries and think about strategically and logistically how things work and getting exposure to that Um, and I think that's really important to consider Um, sometimes you don't always get those opportunities in a clinical role and so thinking from um, kind of my perspective being a governor of a school or being a trustee on a board um, and sitting as a chair as part of a society is fundamental to you being able to develop some of the skills that you may utilize as a leader Um, and there are as you've demonstrated perfectly there are so many leadership roles out there and you know you could be a leader that's very managerial and strategic in an operational sense versus someone who maybe is financially responsible for leadership Um, and I think it's important that people do recognize the opportunities that are available to them and you know you might consider that you're not a leader but actually I think if people did some of the leadership courses they could see that in other areas or other domains actually they would be really effective and so it's definitely worth everyone kind of checking it out and having a definitely and you know starting with even committee work getting on to small committees whether they're through your professional networks or you know I, I we have the association of physios and neurologies and I, I started off on the London committee in about 2003 and then in you know in, in 2014 I was the chair of the national um uh, ACPIN so it's it's it, it's um it they can also develop you through and also doing things like um steward roles and health and safety roles as well you know within our institutions that they, they have training they teach you negotiation skills you get a better understanding of of, of certain aspects of, of, of important areas in our workplaces so th- there's great opportunities um, um, definitely uh, and, and you, you mentioned squiggly career my word 
have I got had a squiggly career so uh, and so I, I think that is and what I've always said is take advantage of those opportunities as well that present themselves sometimes and you think oh you look at it you think mm, no no actually you know it might be worth a punt you know and, and I've I've done that a lot in my career and sometimes it comes to nothing sometimes it's been great and it's opened a door so so it, it's it's always look out for those opportunities and and I think sometimes we might not think we're good enough the old imposter syndrome sits on the shoulder and says nah you know but actually um, sometimes it is just worth a punt and even if you just get some feedback and you didn't get the particular role that can it's a great learning opportunity oh, Kita, thank you so much some really really brilliant kind of top tips for anyone listening um, so yeah thank you very much for coming on today um, and thank you to everyone for listening to Rad Chat um, so your hosts today have been Naaman Jokansen and Joe McNamara uh, head over to our YouTube page to see a live recording of the podcast uh, if you're utilising the podcast for CPD purposes consider the reflective questions posted along with the links to resources and literature that we've discussed uh, to receive your accredited cpt certificate please complete the google form linked to the podcast uh, so our next guest to feature will be dr alan pacey who will be discussing fertility and cancer um, thank you for listening and take care